Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting right now to over 60 countries. We're broadcasting from the middle of the third most important centre in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, VCs, incubators, accelerators, Silicon Beach in Los Angeles, California. This is where technology and entertainment intersect. So I want to thank you all for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. I really appreciate it. Yesterday, I came across an interesting piece of news. The amount of debt debt being carried in the Chinese economy is now so high that it could lead to a financial crisis. To grow the economy, the Chinese government and its central bank have extended credit generously to all sorts of Chinese companies. Now, many of these are state-owned enterprises, which are often old-fashioned, you know, legacy, uncompetitive companies that are kept alive by political will, will rather than performance. And the, the rate of non-performing loans is as high as 20% or $1 trillion. So unless this vicious cycle is broken, a major financial crisis or at least a sharp slowdown is an inevitable ultimate outcome. So that ain't good. Instant delivery or at least delivery within an hour is catching on with 24 states in the District of Columbia now (laughs) legalising the use of marijuana in some form, marijuana dispensaries are seeking alternate ways to get their product to customers. Now, Green Rush is one of several California startups that's providing a legal weed delivery service. Partnering with nearly 200 dispensaries in the state, The San Francisco-based company provides door-to-door service of your cannabis, edibles, oils, and more, all within one hour. That's really pretty good. Now, this show, (laughs) it's pretty hard to get a lot of things within an hour, but if you want your weed, hey, no problem. Now, this show consistently provides advice on the things you should do when you have a startup. We're always telling you the stuff that you should do, but today we're going to do something different. We're going to tell you the nine pieces of really bad startup advice that you should probably ignore. Now, this was sent to me by Doug Latchman, who um, is an entrepreneur, is soon to release a great startup for the logistics industry called Opspace, and uh, I'll have him on the show in a few weeks when he gets a little closer to his goal. But there's a hell of a lot of bad advice out there for startups, and here are some of them. You know, over the past 30 years, I've received a lot of fantastic advice that's helped us make huge breakthroughs in our work assisting startups to be successful. And, uh, you know, we are talking about this last night with a couple of guys, and, you know, really the most important thing is your network of contacts, and being able to bring fantastic people into your company that have credibility um, with potential investors, have p- credibility with the market, but more important, have great advice. But there's some advice that, in my experience, 
typically comes from people who have spent more time being so-called advisors than they have actually being hands-on in a growing or startup business. And I've heard some of these points repeated as gospel time and time again. And frankly, for the reasons I'll give you, it is just, in most cases, unadulterated bullshit. And the first is, entrepreneurship's about taking risks. What a bunch of codswallop that is. Sure, it's probably a little bit more risky than the um, legacy-type way of going about business, but while you've got to do things differently, your risks have got to be really smart and very calculated. Yeah, The advice encouraging first-time entrepreneurs that, you know, it's okay to be make risky decisions and it's okay to throw caution to the wind and be gung-ho, it's just plain irresponsible. The fact is that most of the entrepreneurs that I know who win consistently are pretty risk adverse and there's a big difference between doing things differently and taking risks. Successful entrepreneurs take calculated steps and may take small risks, but they certainly don't go out swinging for the fences with any single business decision. Taking smaller calculated risks and hedging against loss helps you stay around for a hell of a lot longer. And it also really maximises your chance of success. The second piece of codswallop information is that, you know, people who say it won't work, dream takers, and the world's full of dream takers, notably lawyers and accountants, they always say no. They're too quick to advise that your idea, no matter what it is or how good it sounds, it won't work. You know, Jim Cramer, for example, said Tesla will never work. He said, if you get if you get um, Tesla stock, sell it, to, sell it immediately. The company's all sizzle with absolutely no substance. This guy's advising people on buying stock. Um, he said this in 2013 when the stock was $17 and it went to 263 and recently they sold $20 billion worth of cars in two weeks. So that was fucking good advice, wasn't it? Jeez. Saying that something new will never work sounds catchy. You know, you probably sound authoritative. You might even sound smart. But fortunately, it's not up to these wankers who are saying it. If you can build something that delivers value to people, and you can make a profit from it, it'll work. The third idiotic expression for entrepreneurs is never give up, persevere. Now, don't get me wrong, perseverance is important if you're going to make it. But for a long time, especially at the beginning, entrepreneurship can seem like an endless procession of struggles and disappointments. But it's important to understand the difference between perseverance and spinning your wheels. Yes, yeah, some things are just never going to work, ever, never, no matter what you do. And the best way to tell the difference is to talk to your potential customers. You'll soon learn, you'll learn very quickly whether or not you're spinning your wheels. And if you find that the idea you're pursuing is something that solves a real issue, then head down, tail up, keep pursuing it. But you may have to pivot once or twice or more times to get it right. 
But if it doesn't have traction and people don't love it, then you should probably consider giving up on it. No matter how good your product is, if people don't want it and you can't make them want it, then it's probably not worth pursuing. You know, there's an incredible amount of opportunities out there for entrepreneurs and the faster you give up on one that won't work, the faster you can move on to something that will work. I've also heard a million idiots say it's all about the product. Have you ever heard that if you build a product that's good enough, you'll win? Here's the thing. Products don't win. Businesses win. And if you want to beat the competition, your product isn't all that matters. You'll also have to differentiate from your competitors. You're going to have to outmarket them, outsupport them, and outperform them in almost every way. But a great product won't save bad marketing and a bad business strategy either. Another expression I've never been able to really work out is focus on users. Worry about money later. This is great advice if you're mega rich or you've raised millions in venture funding and you need to absolutely dominate the majority of the market in order to succeed, but that's not most of us. That's not most entrepreneurs. If you're going to build a business, one of the first things you need to do is figure out how it's actually going to be a business. Because building a business that's self-supporting will give you the freedom to focus on whatever it is that you want. Force yourself to learn how to make money as early as you can. If you've got a what you call a business and what you've got is an idea, you might even have a product, but until it starts selling, you don't have a business. All you have is a whole bunch of stock, a whole bunch of good ideas. A business is something where you sell things, bring in money, and bring in more than is going out. That is a business. The sixth piece of bullshit information today is that you need an office. There are only two things that a business absolutely needs, and an office isn't one of them. With so many businesses growing profitably as remote teams and sharing how they do it, an office is a pretty easy expense to avoid. Working from home, working from coffee shops, working from co-working spaces, anywhere that doesn't tie up thousands of dollars per month, that money would be much better off spent building your business. The um, seventh piece of idiotic information I hear given to startups is fail, 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 keep failing until you succeed. What sort of advice is that? There's this weird notion in the startup world that the way you become successful is through failure. Oh, he's going to be successful. He's been bankrupt two times before. Well, maybe he just can't do business. And if you're not failing all of the time, some people think that you're not doing something right. This trend of embracing failure is dangerous for a lot of first-time founders because it causes people to think that failure is okay. So we don't need to take steps to prevent it. I mean, how silly is that? 
to do all the hard work of mitigating our risk so that we minimise our chance of failure. That's what you need to do. The eighth idiotic advice, piece of advice for startups is raise money while you can. In my experience, founders of companies that make noise will always be approached by investors looking to profit from you. But don't forget, the earlier you take money in, the more expensive that money's going to be and the sooner that you'll be expected to produce a return. And quite often, it's that pressure that kills businesses in their infancy. Now, the last piece of idiotic advice for startups that I'm going to give you is find a market with no competition. If there's no competition, it can be difficult to, to convince people to solve a problem they didn't even know they had. By building the best possible solution in your market, you can still get enough customers to achieve your goals as a business. So they're just nine pieces of advice that's given to, um, to startups that is all simply crap. So, um, and don't, don't forget that a business, I hear lots of people saying, I've just started a business. Are you making money? No. Are you selling stuff? No. Well, you don't have a business. You have a warehouse full of stuff. Or you have a head full of ideas, which you certainly don't have a business. Now, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I was recently appointed the honorary president of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management. Very prestigious, and I'm really pleased about it. And um, AISMM is the premier organization for business in the US and in the UK and in Australia and in a bunch of other places. Now, if you're serious about improving your skill level, your status and your network, you should join AISMM today. There's a wealth of the latest information, complete business audits, webinars, a 26-person advisory board with reputations and skill levels to rival any on the planet. It is the most fantastic list of people that you're ever going to come across. So go to AISMM.US and join now. If you're outside the United States, look up AISMM and it will give you your local chapter. Now, I'm always trying to get great guests and uh, it's, it's really quite difficult sometimes, but today I have a sensational guest, a woman whose personality and her talent and determination just do not quit. Um, Screamin' Rachel Kane is the president of the legendary Trax Records in Chicago. She's a great singer. She stars in a new movie just released in New York where she sings the title track. She's built a great industry out of very little. Rachel is really cool. I love her. She's fantastic. And she's a good friend, and I like that too. I'll be back with Screamin' Rachel Kane, track record superstar, immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel.
Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we introduce successful entrepreneurs, celebrities, entertainment people, and people involved in disciplines that can assist us all to be much more effective in business. You know, people who think outside the box, people who've got something to share with other entrepreneurs so that um, can help us all become more successful. You know, people like that are gold in this fast-paced technology era, and I think I've said a number of times, it doesn't matter what sort of business that you're in, whether you're, you know, you could be a plumber or you could develop a new app or you can open a dry cleaning store you can do fucking near anything and um, we all go through the same struggles we all face the same challenges same stuff comes up and bites us in the ass when we're not expecting it so in these interviews i try to find out what makes these successful people tick what is it that they've done that have worked for them what are the things that they've done that didn't work for them And we can learn from their experience and from the things that have made them successful. I want to learn how we can overcome these challenges. And they're challenges that confront every startup business. You know, we need to learn from the experiences of successful people. Now, people who listen to this show regularly know that I love people that are a little weird. People that are a little eccentric. People who are different. And uh, one of my favourite sayings is, fall in love with a person who enjoys your madness, not some idiot who wants to change you. You know, boring people are a dime a dozen, and I don't like them. (laughs) My guest today is anything but normal. She is one of my favourite people. She is zany to say the least. (laughs) Screamin' Rachel Kane was named the Queen of House Music by Billboard magazine. A multi-talented visionary. She's really a trailblazer who's established herself as a solid house recording artist and a force behind the rise of house music in America. She's also a powerhouse singer and actress. And just a 
got a personality that just doesn't quit. And what makes her unique is that she not only works in front of the mic and at the helm of America's most celebrated dance music label, Tracks Records, she's a successful recording artist, label executive, the queen of house music, and Beatport re- describes Track Record as a successful label on the level with Def Jam and Chess. Now, Screaming Rachel Kane is a is a bl- blonde rocker chick to say the least. She wears great jeans as well, I must say. And uh, in the eighties, she was singing in punk bands and throwing shows at a Chicago warehouse known as the Space Place. From living the underground scene in Chicago and New York, Rachel is now the highly successful CEO of Trax which is a major record label. Rachel studied voice from opera to blues, dance from ballet to jacking, and acting (laughs) at the prestigious Lee Strasberg Institute. Rachel's acted in films including Night Owl, Too Pure, and The Deflowering. She's hosted several shows. I watched one the other day, actually. Um, I think it was on... um, not sure what it was on, actually. But I watched it, and it was great. She's really great in front of a camera. She's a natural. Um, she's a, So she's hosted several shows, including the award-winning cable series Manhattan Lifestyles and has made many, many television and speaking appearances. Now, let me just paint a picture of Rachel for you. Now, some of this might be wrong. I might not be quite accurate, but she's about five foot two. She's little, very vivacious, good body, really well endowed, and a personality and a confidence that just doesn't quit. I love this bird. She's great. She's a real spark. You know how you meet somebody and they've just got a, this great life. They're just full of energy and, and fire and spark? That's Rachel. Rachel. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. How are you? I'm great. And Bob, I'm really honored to be on your show. And I've got to say, meeting you in L.A. was one of the highlights of my trip. And one then of the, one uh, of the got highlights of that hour. Yeah, no, really. I do, I do mean that. And then listening to some of your shows uh, with advice by yourself and people like Stephen Spencer and others, I found invaluable. And I plan on coming back in June and cannot wait to share those cocktails, you know. Yes, I'm we're... Usually, um, yeah, you know, I'm usually a New York kind of gal, and in the past, the pace of L.A. seemed kind of slow, but this trip was jam-packed with business opportunities. This is a and good course, town, too. Um, yeah. So you'll come, you'll come up to our pad. We look across the whole of the um, west side of L.A. from the city way up to sort of Santa Monica. So we'll start there, and then we'll go to the Marmont and finish off how's that work for you <laughs> i love that plan i love chateau marmont so do I. I love the cocktails yes that's our local bar i know <laughs> it's pretty cool huh um, it's wonderful now i want to set the scene so let's go back to when you were in new york in the late 80s i've read a lot of stuff and it's really interesting from what i've read that was a pretty weird time um you're caught up sort of indirectly in a couple of murders. Um, a Maharaji 
who was going to make you a star, bit the dust. You got a lot of celebrity and notoriety as the other woman. You're in, and then so that sounds like a pretty seedy, yeah, almost com- sort of paints a Capone-ish sort of image, doesn't it? Well, it it definitely was a crazy time, you know, and I would say that my New York experience prepared me for anything that you could throw my way. Um, To quote Dickens, I would say it was the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I met a lot of interesting people. Uh, One person I met was Sylvia Robinson, and she was the lady behind Sugar Hill Records, who really basically launched the entire hip-hop movement. So it was she who inspired me to say that one day I could take house music to the world, and and that's really what I've been doing. And then as far as these murders go, let me tell you a little bit about that. Uh, Basically, club kids, you know, were in full swing then. I don't know if you know much about that, but, you know, all the crazy ways that... Yeah, of course. All the crazy ways that people would look and the crazy parties. You know, I used to do all the parties with Michael Alec, and he was kind of like the Warhol of the yeah. whole scene. And things were going along great until that murder happened. And, of course, you know, it was really all drug-induced. I was really lucky that, you know, drugs never played a major part in my life, thank God. So... Right. Uh, you know, I knew that something good could come of of the scene, you know, even though uh, these crazy things did happen, I knew that some good things could come out of it. And so basically, uh, that was where I came upon deciding to go for everything that I really loved, you know, go along with the music that I loved. And also, you know, do the creative shows and the things that I love to do and the acting that I love to do, but but take control of it, you know, really lead my own destiny. And I think that's so important. So, you know, when the, the opportunity presented itself to leave New York after all that craziness, uh, even though it was with Mr. Shady, you know, Larry Sherman offering me to come to tracks and yeah. saying, hey, I'll come if I can be president. I just knew it was time for me to start a new chapter. So you're reasonably young, one would have thought, what, 20s or something. What um, what gave you the confidence as sort of somebody who'd been involved in the underground, if you like, um, what gave you the confidence to think, well, shit, I can run a business and um, I, I can really stamp my imprint on a record company? What gave you that confidence? I've had a lot of great mentors and role models, and I think that that is just so important. That's that's just the thing, you know, as you've written books that have encouraged people and you do your show. I think um, the mentors and then starting with my grandmother who came to America at the age of 14. Right. And, you know, she became a, a successful chef. So I knew if she could do that, well, I could do anything. Right. And then, you know, as far as the record company goes, um, basically I had a mentor, Dr. Richard Cook, who brought me an article one day from Time Magazine about Master P. And he said, Rachel, you could build your own empire. And, you know, it seemed, hey, why not? Okay. Where were you um, at the time you were in um, Cannes? 
and um, Larry Sherman said, why was Larry Sherman, incidentally, known as notoriously shady? A bit like, well, always you know, like the Tupac of the time, was it or something? The the music industry, of course, you know, just is is known to be uh, cutthroats. Yeah, sure. And I think, and I think that even though, yes. Larry is a very shady individual. That's that's true. And I think that uh, one of the things is, though, that most talent never really realizes that it's so important to have business savvy. And so, you know, he did take advantage of that. But then he wasn't the first to do that because no. many, you know, industry people have done that because artists in most cases just want to be artists. Yep. They don't want to know about how do I publish my songs? They don't even want to register their songs, but yeah. you know, all these things are what will follow them for the rest of their career. So yes, he was shady in the fact that he did take advantage of people, but many people have done the same, you know, throughout the industry and, and in all industries, business is business and, as I'm told. And, and usually when you're entertaining, cause you know, I was, I was an entertainer for about, 20 years or more and um, I had about five managers in fact we we're just talking about it yesterday I had about five managers and they were all crooked yeah <laughs> you know, there you go it's just a, it's just a matter of degree how much they rip you off um, so where were you at this point where were you as a person where was your head at were you I want to get out of this scene and I want to go and do my own thing or where were you at as a person well, I I had the confidence. I know that because, you know, I'd been quite successful in New York and basically uh, hosted some of the largest parties at places like the Limelight, the Tunnel, Club USA, and, you know, sang in those places and basically was kind of in with the in-crowd jet set scene. And then uh, because of the things that happened, you know, those two tragedies with the murder of Prince Teddy and, you know, um, my best friend, Michael Alley, killing Angel because of his drug-induced uh, trauma, sort of speak. Uh, I I knew that I wanted to change things, but I knew that I could could make things better, and I knew that I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. So yes. as a person, you know, that was that was it for me. I've always wanted to be the captain of my own ship. I don't like people telling me how to to do my music or how to do anything for that matter. Yeah, I'm with you. So when you say you want to make changes, do you want to make changes to your own life or did you want to make changes to that whole music scene? Well, I wanted to make changes to the whole music scene because at the time, this house music, even though, you know, uh, it was dominating the clubs, but really people were making fun of it. A lot of industry big, you know, honchos were saying, hey, it's not even really music. Mm. But I knew, I knew it was special and I knew that, you know, someone needed to to take it to the top. Someone needed to be the voice. Somebody needed to be like the Russell Simmons for house music. Sure. And I'd known Russell in New York. So, you know, seeing all that, I wanted to change the industry and I wanted to bring house music to the forefront. So this is the part that I find extraordinary and the part that I don't think um, that you should get an enormous amount of credit for. Um, so you left New York 
you got back to the Trax warehouse in Chicago and you found that Trax was owed a whole heap of money. The electricity was off. The place was a wreck. There was no phones. You said you felt like Cinderella pushing a broom in a dirty old warehouse. All the people were despondent. Um, You know, even the people who worked there were saying, nobody wants this music anymore. And this is when you said, I'm going to prove all you bastards wrong. I'm going to make music. I'm going to get tracks back on the map. Now, that is a big step. And most people would have buckled under that. So what were the biggest challenges you faced through that time? You must have walked in the door of tracks and gone, oh, my God. Uh, yes, uh, that or is true. Like that. I mean, well, <laughs> absolutely, because, you know, I had just been, you know, in the French Riviera performing at the International Music Festival, you know, and there I am, you know, thinking because tracks is all over the clubs and everywhere in New York and people are talking about it. So I'm thinking, hey, this is going to be, you know, wonderful. And then I walk into this place and I can't believe people are there with a generator, you know, and and sitting around a a cardboard box playing cards, you know, it was, it was a real letdown. But, but the thing was, I knew the music was special, and I knew that I believed in the music, I believed in myself, I believed in my talent, my songwriting, um, you know, and I, I just knew that it was something that needed to be preserved. Yep. What happened to tracks, and I think why it fell in such economic ruin, was really because Vinyl, vinyl, almost instantly at that time, for whatever reason, you know, just stopped. Yeah, people stopped buying vinyl records. You know, yeah. and and the thing was, Tracks actually had its own vinyl pressing plant, and there were distributors that owed many, many, many thousands of dollars. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, for that matter, that closed their doors, and so that was why everything just kind of came to a standstill. And it, w- it was just such an interesting change, but I knew something had to be done, and I knew that I could do it. And how I did it, that's really pretty fascinating. Okay, so before we get on to how you did it, um, where do you get this drive and this mental toughness from? Where did well, it come from I your mean, family, or was that something you learnt in the trenches, or... Where did you learn to be tough and smart and have the drive to overcome heaps of obstacles? I think a lot of it, as I said before, did come from really having some incredible mentors. I think that everyone who's trying to to get somewhere, hopefully, you know, they'll they'll give a hand up. Like I always try to help those on their way up to inspire yeah. them, and I think that that inspiration. So yeah, that inspiration definitely came a lot from others that, you know, led me on my path. But also, it's like when you tell me no, I'm just going to get stronger and stronger. I'm just going to be more, you know, driven and, and just that much more uh, sure of myself. That's that's the way I am. And I mean, you know, being a woman in my industry, people don't even want to accept that, especially sure. the business side of it. So. 
Um, my drive, I guess it's something from within, but it's also come from people that I've admired. It's it's from, you know, books that I've read. It's from, you know, inspirational kind of, you know, speakers. All of those things have really given me drive and determination. Okay, so you walk back into tracks. It's a mess. Um, what were the biggest challenges you faced at, at that point, and how did you overcome those challenges? Well, the biggest challenges is that the industry was changing, and actually the industry that I'm in is constantly changing, but sure. the biggest change, yeah, you know, the thing is that we were the first industry that really went digital, because before books became digital, before yep. movies became downloads, you know, music yep. did. And I was lucky enough as I've, you know, my life sort of, I think, you know, when you go on a path and you believe in yourself, things just present themselves. Yep. We create our own destiny and reality. And I was lucky enough to actually run into the man, um, Tom Ryan, who created eMusic. Now, that was before iTunes. Right. And he came to me and said, I want to license your entire catalog. And I said, oh, okay, you want to license the catalog. Now, now can I still, you know, make vinyl? Yes. Can I still sell CDs? Yes. Can I still do licensing deals? Yes. The only thing I want exclusive for is the Internet. Right. And nobody was doing that at the time. Nobody. He was really a genius. I mean, you know, no doubt way ahead of his time. And I just thought, well, can't hurt me. Plus, I'm going to be paid to do it. And that was really the turnaround. And in many ways, the salvation. And I wasn't afraid. How much knowledge did you have of the digital side of music at that time? I mean, you know, um, what sort of a background did you have? You know, no None. one did. No yeah. one had a background in it. And, and and in fact, you know, I have a lot of friends, like, for instance, uh, Jelly Bean Benitez, who produced a lot of the big Madonna, Lucky Star Holiday. Okay, right. he's a friend of mine in New York. And I tried to convince him to license his catalog. You know, why yeah. not? You know, you'd be sure. paid to do this. And, and everyone I knew in the industry was turning it down, not even for money. They wouldn't touch it. They were so afraid of this idea of digital music. But I knew that there was going to be no turning back. And I jumped on it when no one else really wanted to. I guess it's only in the music industry that somebody could call themselves screaming Rachel Kane and... <laughs> be a CEO, right? Uh, yes, although I yeah, I think it is the only only in the music industry because uh, James Brown's manager called himself Super Frank and he was pretty, you know, intense. But so, yeah, I guess it is pretty much the music industry. And then that whole screaming thing is really all about my attitude. You know, I come into the room and I'm screaming, you know. I don't have to say a word and I'm screaming. That's it. <laughs> You've got, I must admit, you have a, a hell of a presence, um, which, is, which is great. Now, what's it, what's it like balancing um, your creative work in acting and writing and singing? That's a, that's a pretty full plate on its own. How do you balance that with your 
business responsibilities. We, you know, we often talk on this show about the need to get. Well, every week we talk about the need for um, people in any industry to have mentors because. Um, if you're running a business, you need to wear about 10 hats and most yeah. people aren't good at wearing 10 hats. Most people are good at their creative bit. They can design something and create something, but they need a whole bunch of other talents to be able to manage it. Um, but you, you've you got the creative side, which you're obviously great at, um, and you're obviously good from the business side as well. Are you a hands-on um business manager or are you a just really know how everything's got to work and have other people work it for you well you know what you have to do and this has taken me years to do is you really have to build a solid team yeah because without that team such as here's here's an example as far as the day-to-day or on the creative side, I'm just talking creative right. now and, okay. and maybe just the inner workings, the inner, like, the you know, we only have three people, you know, right. myself, Mark Sahaki, and George Cruz, who you yep. met. Yep. But then, you know, Sony is our distributor. So, you know, but I deal with them on a personal level because it's really the orchard whom were purchased by Sony about maybe eight months ago, and I, I was with The Orchard for about 10 years right. um, on the digital distribution side. And basically, you know, you have to have a personal kind of a, a representation with these people. I think it's important that you're not just like one of the many labels that Sony has. You know, they, sure. they, they put a face to, to me. That's very important. But you do need that team. I mean, they have an entire building in New York, you know, with people running and doing this and that for tracks and, you know, other labels as well, of course. But um, then on the publishing side, you know, it took me years to really kind of come back to the first person who ever did my publishing, which is interesting. Yeah. Because publishing is so important and, and with Critical. tracks, you, yeah, it's, it's everything because, mm. you know, it's all about the ownership of that intellectual property and who's being paid what and how it's all divided. And so that is another, you know, situation where you need just a huge team. I've got a guy, Ellis Rich, but, I mean, he runs a huge company and he has people in every territory, you know, people in France and Germany and Italy, wherever, and all those people work on collecting the royalties. So you need a huge team to, to actually, you know, do all these things, but you gotta, you still have to put your own like personal face to it. And, and to me, it's like this team, it's all great that I have this team, but they don't really have anything to do with how I want to present the image or the creativity of what I do. That I have free reign on all of that, which is an unusual situation for anybody, yeah. you know, and that's that's what I have to have to be happy. I mean, you know, I, I would never want to be in any situation for any amount of money where somebody told me, oh, well, you know, change that song. I've worked for major labels as far as doing projects for them in the past where they'd hire me, you yep. know, to, to produce an album or something like that. And, you know, I've seen where people come in, waste money, waste time, you know, say, change this, change that. They don't have a clue of what they're doing. You know, they, yeah. they, 
you know, in one circumstance, they spent so much money doing an album because they kept changing things around that they decided to shelf that album. And, you know, luckily it didn't have anything to do with me. So I, I did my job. I was paid. But that poor artist, you never heard from him again. <laughs> okay. Um your newly released project, Good Spirits Rising. Now, Good Spirits Rising is a single. It uh, serves as a soundtrack to the indie feature Vamp Baker's Tray, a film in which you co-star as an actress. Now, Vamp Baker's is a screaming, screaming, screening in New York. How does it feel to have a film debut in the Big Apple and walking down the red carpet and have everybody fainting all over you? Well, I've got to say, I did all this business. I've gone on all this journey because I love it. I love to strut my stuff on the red carpet. I love everybody to take my photograph. I love people. I love yeah. to party. I love to have fun, you know, and, and Vamp Bikers is really exciting, you know, as an actress, it's it's been great because I've gotten to work with people like Lilo Bracanti from Bronx Tale and Apache Ramos, who was in the cult classic, The Warriors, Angel Salazar from Scarface. And, you know, I really believe yeah. in the director, Eric Rivas. It's actually a trilogy. It's a it's three movies. Right. So it's it's going to be interesting. And then I'm, you know, besides doing the soundtrack and and walking the red carpet and acting in it, you know, I hope to distribute the uh, ser- the series of pictures through the Orchard, which is now the largest uh, independent distributor of films. Right. So it's yeah. So it's interesting. And so you got the trifecta. I do it all for the glamour. <laughs> okay, tell us about your latest recording project, You Do. Oh, now, You Do is is completely unique. It's, it's actually a four-song EP. And right. so it features Spirits Rising, The Flow, My Main Man, and Gina. But what's different about this, I mean, you get all the dance remixes and... And right now, you know, lots of DJs are playing Spirits Rising. It's exciting. All, right. all things are going on. But what's different about it from anything that's going on with anybody else's EP or albums is that we're also releasing a stem package along with the mixes. Now, that enables the listener to actually customize the song if they so desire or they can just oh, cool. enjoy Listening, right. What a because cool I, idea. Don't you think? Because these days everybody, you know, wants to customize. They want to be an individual. Yeah. And like, you know how kids all want to be DJs now. You yeah. know, they used to want to learn how to play the guitar, but now that Forbes has the top 10 highest paid DJ list, uh, things are changing. And so um, I think, you know, that that whole thing with you do, giving the opportunity to customize is just, it's going to change the industry. It's a great idea. And I believe that. Okay. Tell me about the Tracks brand. Where where are you going with that? How, how did you position it the way it is and where's it going? Well, the great thing about the Tracks brand is it's got, you know, it's legendary music and it's known first and foremost for that. The marketing has been really simple as far as, you know, the image itself, that red and white T-R-A-X, you know. Great name. Um, yeah, right? Such a cool it, name, it, yeah. 
it just worked out. And as a matter of fact, I had to uh, fight. Well, I got the trademark. You know, I, I myself own the trademark as well as as the logo. But the thing with the trademark is I had to fight with them because they said, you know, the word tracks is part of the cultural lexicon. But I explained, but that many years ago when we first put it on a record, it was not. Yep. People did not spell it that way. And I was able to prove my case, and therefore I do own the trademark. And I think, you know, the simplicity of it, the look of it, but then it's all about the great music that it stands for. Sure, sure. You know, so that's, so that's the brand. Is there a conflict between branding tracks and branding Screaming Rachel? Is there a, is there a, a clash there or, is, or do they go quite happily hand in hand or are they occupying two different spaces? I don't know. I think they, they kind of go hand in hand. It's funny because a lot of people just say, hey, you know, at, at the heart of it, you are tracks, yeah. you know, because, because at the time it was just just something that I believed in. It was a, a movement. It was a new music that that people hadn't even heard of. They thought it was so stripped down it wasn't even music. Yeah. And now, you know, they, they call it EDM. They've, you know, kind of, but, it, but it's all really house music. House music is the mother of all those things, the trap, Moombaton, and all the other things that they, you know, dubstep that's all like tracks is, you know, where it all began. And I don't really think that there's a conflict. Um, it's, you know, you've, it's got a great, you've got a great brand yourself. I mean, it's a super brand. I love it. Well, thank you. Now, you know, at the heart of it is, is my heart, so I think that's the most important thing. Okay. Apart from coming up to the house and having cocktails with us at Marmont, what else have you got planned for the year? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, coming to L.A. was really, I mean, fantastic. So many great, like, business things came out of it. It was pretty amazing. In fact... What I was telling you about you do, the way, you know, we are now um, actually giving or people can purchase the STEM package. Well, now I've gone into business and I have a new URL, which will be coming out soon, called Kings of Tracks, T-R-A-X. Right. And I am working on that with business luminary Eddie Gordon, who's worked with Island Records and, mm-hmm. and currently um, currently has Kings of Spins. Yep. Now, um, people can look at Kings of Spins online now, but what we're, what we're going to be doing is actually offering these STEM packages, and then we're going to be offering a way for people to uh, create their own new sounds, uh, expose those on the site, so it's going to be a really exciting new venture, and it's going to actually you know, be be headquartered in LA so oh, I'm great. very excited yeah I think that that's going to be great because we're going to give a lot of new talent a way to make the charts and create their own masterpieces and beyond that also you know people can just listen to some great new things fantastic unfortunately we are out of time um, Rachel Rachel is one of the world's great people I tell you she's She's fabulous. She's a little dynamo. She's only tiny. Well, <laughs> thank you. Tiny in height. Got big boobs, but tiny. And um, thanks very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. I really enjoyed it. And well, thank uh, you. Now you can connect with Rachel 
at Trax Records, T-R-A-X Records, at M-E.com. That's Trax Records at M-E.com. Look her up anyway. She's um, it, it, There's so much information about her, and it's really cool. And it's a, a great story from walking into a place that's demolished and broke and disillusioned and building it into the power empire that it is now. And you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Network, and I'll be back with you right after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business. And we're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And we broadcast from Hollywood Boulevard. In Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. If you didn't uh, perform a background check on your business partners and employees, you may be surprised that they didn't tell you everything there was in their resume. Many would-be partners and employees have dark, often even dangerous, pasts. And statistics show that 5% of job applicants falsify their name and or their social security number. So one person every 20 gives you a bullshit name and a social security number. That's great. Um, 11,000 violent occurrences in the workplace are reported annually. Employee theft and dishonesty account for losses of billions of dollars a year, not including the billions that are spent trying to protect against theft. So how do you go about a background check? And why do so many entrepreneurs and businesses not do them? You probably think it's too expensive. Perhaps you think it's too time-consuming or maybe you think you're a good judge of character and just don't need to do it and it's not going to happen to you. Well, firstly, it's not expensive, um, particularly in, in comparison with what a mistake can cost you. And so much information is available online. So if you're one of those people who trust people and believe that a handshake is enough, you could be in for a very rude and a very expensive awakening. You know, the world's changed. The rules have changed in terms of how to do business. And I think you need to be much more careful with who you're partnering with, who you're hiring and who you're doing business with. Most online sources are tied into state and federal government databases and are pretty reputable. The data purchased from the government and from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and other publications is invaluable. And, you know, while there's some inaccuracies due to human error, it's a great starting point. So there are three steps you need to take to fully explore a person's history. Typical phases will be an online investigation, then go through public records, and finally, if needed, a field investigation. Online um, investigation is pretty comprehensive. It's cost-effective. 
you get a good primary search and the basic elements of a background check are, you know, verifying the name, the social security number, um, confirming that they've actually lived and worked where they say they have, checking that their um, credentials are what they say they are. And uh, this can be covered by any number of online sources. If one or more, and if you want a more thorough investigation, then you obtain an investigator. But always question the investigator about their methodology and their and their ethics because companies have to be very, very careful about who they do hire to do investigative work because if there's a problem, um, it could come and bite you. To be safe, you must understand the limits drawn by state and federal laws concerning background checks. It's all set out in the uh, Fair Credit Reporting Act. There's a simple gauge to determine how far to go with an investigation. If you're in questioning whether to do something and imagine that someone found out that you did it and it ended up on the front page of the paper, would you be happy or horrified? If you're going to be horrified, don't do it. But don't let these cautions put you off doing a background check of those proposed partners and employees. You may save yourself a huge amount of grief. Just a thought, um, something really interesting. The combined user base of the top four chat apps is larger than the combined user base of the f top four social networks. Chat apps have a higher retention and usage rates than most mobile apps. Finally, the majority of their users are young, which is an extremely important demographic for brands, advertisers and, and publishers. Mobile messaging, mobile messaging apps are now huge. The largest services have hundreds of millions of active users. And falling data prices and cheaper devices and improved features are helping to propel that growth. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary. Media companies and marketers are still investing more time and resources into social networks like Facebook and Twitter than they are into um, messaging services. But one suspects that that's going to rapidly change as messaging companies build out their services and provide more avenues for connecting brands, publishers and advertisers with users. So watch out for those messaging apps. We just had a meeting about that with a couple of guys last night. It is a massive opportunity and all of the big guys are looking very, they know the same stuff we know and they're looking at it very hard. So I hope you've enjoyed, enjoyed today's show. I hope you enjoyed the um, interview with Screamin' Rachel Kane. She really is something, and um, she is a very smart cookie, apart from being a great talent. Now, we're pleased to have been bringing you this show since 2011, five years, not a bad inning. And if you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. We've got a new website being launched, hopefully, in about two weeks. And everybody on my mailing list, tens of thousands of you, will get um, 
notification when it goes live and I look forward to your comments, irrespective of whether they're good or bad. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, if you're not really living right on that edge, then you're just taking up too much space. So get out of the road and let somebody who wants to succeed get through. You know, it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. I'm Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week when I will, I was going to say I'd again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, but I won't. I'll be in Hawaii. So I will, I've got a client meeting in Hawaii, so I will, next week's program will come from there. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.